So, when you were living under ISIS in mm. Raqqa, yeah. you saw a beheading. Um, my family saw it. There is a body and, and a head. And the head is uh, separate from the body and got kicked uh, by the children there. In 2016, 22-year-old February made a decision to move to Syria and join Islamic State, better known as ISIS. But his dreams of going to university and getting a job failed to materialize. And after 11 months inside the caliphate, he escaped back to Indonesia with his family. This is the story of one man who went to join ISIS and who somehow made it home again. For new narrative and a special mini-series of Southeast Asia Dispatches, I'm Aisha Llewellyn, and this is Road to Raqqa. At the end of the last episode, we left February on the border between Turkey and Syria, having boarded a bus from Istanbul to Hatay province. He was met by people smugglers who facilitated his journey through the mountains and into the caliphate. And then in Hatay city, we uh, get up from the bus and there's a lot of smuggler, smuggler who took a lot of our belongings, like IDs, passport and everything, even the clothes. I, I, on, I only br- uh, bring the the money and the clothes that I wear. And then it was time for February to start the crossing into Syria. There, uh, we changed the, uh, the vehicle to like a few sedan, few uh, vans, go to the border, to the mountains. And the, it's about two hours. As of the time. Yeah. And then, yeah, after we arrive, it's near the mountain. We need to climb the mountain with running for about six hours, always running. There's a, you know, Turkish army, maybe we need to get down, uh, get, uh, rise again, get down, you know, like that. You could see the Turkish army? Uh, no, the smuggler can see. On the, so they said, oh, dude, yes. we can see some soldiers. We need to hide, down. we need to, yeah, something like that. You have to wonder what he was thinking at this point. You went from running an online shop to running through the mountains, hiding from Turkish soldiers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What were you thinking at that time? What was going through your mind? I almost collapsed a lot of times when I was in the mountain, and I thought I always thought that maybe this is it. I will die. I will die. I will die. In the middle of nowhere, there is a house, and the other is like not a desert. I mean the a field. We arrive at the night uh, and then in the morning the people from the checkpoint, a lot of people like dozens of people came with the guns and with the mass with, uh, from the car and asked our group, where did you want to go? And after that, and they said that come with us and we got uh, we go to their car and they um, bring us to the some kind of police station. 
they ask about what is your uh, purpose to go to Syria. The other people say to me that this is not ISIS. We got captured. This this is the other faction. When February entered Syria in 2016, there were a number of groups fighting for control of the region. In addition to ISIS, Jabhat al-Nusra, or the al-Nusra Front, was another jihadist group looking to try and overthrow the Assad regime and establish an Islamic state in Syria. Formerly affiliated with al-Qaeda, al-Nusra was initially made up of Syrian fighters, but as more and more foreigners poured into Syria to join ISIS, the al-Nusra Front saw an opportunity to get new recruits of their own. Now, in February's telling, he was held by Jabhat al-Nusra for about a month as they tried to work on all the new recruits and get them to join. But finally, perhaps miraculously, one might say, February says they were released when it became clear that they all just wanted to go to Raqqa and join ISIS. And so February finally got his wish. His journey towards ISIS continued, and he went on to be processed at something called the Maktab Hijra. Now, this part about the Maktab Hijra is important. We know that these kinds of offices, which February calls an immigration office, did indeed exist in Syria. They were a kind of checkpoint that all new recruits or people who wanted to live under ISIS had to go through, and it was where their information was taken. The idea, on paper at least, was that this was a kind of sorting office where newcomers to the caliphate would be vetted to decide what kind of job they would do and where they would live. But as February quickly discovered, this was not exactly true. There's a person said he uh, gave me gave all the muhajirin, the new muhajirin, a letter. A letter said that what is your uh, capability? What is your name? What is your uh, education level or something, what you want, what you want to get a job, what you want to get an education, I need to go sign up, fill the, the paper, paper, and then after one day, after, eh, not one day, a few hours, okay, a few hours then, uh, like two people from ISIS said that that's, that's not truth, I mean, the letter is, uh, it's use, uh, use, useless, useless, I'm sorry, it's useless. You cannot go to job and everything. You need to go to the, to the battle, to join the army. In addition to being held captive by al-Nusra and not even getting to ISIS-controlled territory for several months, this was one of the first real signs that February had made a mistake traveling to Syria. When he got to the Maktab Hijra, he quickly realized that he was about to be press-ganged into joining the military. In some ways, it's not that surprising when you consider that ISIS was essentially a bloodthirsty terrorist group hell-bent on armed combat, but also when you consider February's profile. So you were, what, 20? 20... 22? 22 at that point. 22, 23, yeah. So 22, 23, right? So you were probably quite useful to them. That's probably why they were trying to force you, right? I mean, you were the perfect uh, age yeah. to go and be drafted into the army, and you were yeah. single, you didn't have a wife, mm -hmm. you didn't have children. So you were kind of like a prime candidate 
that's why they were really pushing you but in the end you made it so difficult that they just thought we'll find somebody else yes joining the military was never part of february's plan he'd intended to go and meet up with his family in raqqa and then hoped to go to university after all this was what isis had promised would happen ISIS media produced hundreds of videos showing the promised land that awaited Mujahideen if they travelled to Syria. But there was one person who February idolised more than anyone else. That man was Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, ISIS's supreme leader who declared the caliphate in Mosul in 2014. The leader of the ISIS, the Baghdadi, said you can be anything at the caliphate in the area. If you want to go to military, you can get a job and everything. So yeah, there is no compulsion to the religion, he said like that. All this talk about how you could be whatever you wanted to be was at best hyperbole and at worst complete nonsense. And the concept of enrolling in Islamic State University would understandably have probably sound delusional to most people. But to February, the group had implied that he could fulfill his dream of studying graphic design and getting a job. What, what job did you think you would do with graphic design under ISIS? Well, maybe the media about the the media, the ISIS media, maybe just videography or something, anything. Now, perhaps what I ask February next is a little unfair. But if someone says they wanted to work with ISIS media in the videography department, they really need to explain what they mean by that. Yeah. Shooting beheading videos? What? Beheading videos, like the one I showed you. Beheading videos? Yeah, yeah. Like that? No, I mean, yeah, just, just work with the ISIS. Okay, if they had asked you to film them... Like Ngora Oram or something. I don't know. Would you have done it? No, maybe. Maybe? No, because, you know, the job, I mean, um, what kind of job? Not what kind of job? Pekerjaan apa saja gitu, I mean, not, not only graphic design. It's, I can maybe contribute or just go to education like, like I said before. But more is education, like more than 60% or 70% is education, but the 30% is get a job. And also the Baghdadi said, if you don't uh, work in ISIS or uh, do nothing, you will get the, the tunjangan, you will get the money. Essentially, February had thought that there was some kind of state welfare that allowed people to just sit around and, in his words, do nothing. In Syria. Did you wonder where the money was coming from? How I ISIS was sustaining the caliphate? You didn't know. Um, okay, maybe because of the war, they they defeat someone, they get the money, and from the I don't know, something like that maybe. Now this interaction clearly shows the mixed messaging of ISIS. On the one hand, they put out quaint videos of civilians living it up in Raqqa as Baghdadi made outlandish promises online. But on the other, the group was waging a bloody conflict on multiple fronts. For people who had made the trip to Syria, their wildly positive narrative 
quickly turned out to be an illusion. And it was an illusion that February was about to encounter firsthand. And finally, after you left in September, finally in what, February? February. You got to Raqqa. You got to Raqqa. I got to Raqqa. We go by the car, we get off from the car, running, go by the car again, something like that. In the desert, because we uh, melewati apa? Uh, Basar Assad uh, army. Okay. Mm. So you were going. So you were going through Assad controlled. Yeah, area territory. Uh-huh. Okay. There's a lot of mine to uh, landfill. Eh, you know, the land. Landmines. Landmines. So you were trying to get around the landmines. Yes, you're a smuggler. So, but this kind of sounds um, pretty crazy when you think that you were just living in Jakarta, right? Yeah. yeah. Running an online shop, <laughs> and you came from uh, yeah. at one time quite mm. an affluent family. Yeah. yeah, or a middle class family, and now you're running through the desert from Assad, <laughs> dodging landmines, right? Yeah. I mean, what were you thinking at the time? Did you adapt easily to it? <laughs> when I was still in Turkey, I was uh, making my mind, okay, whatever happens, just go flow like flow like water or something. Go with the flow. Go with the flow. So February finally made it to Raqqa, where he was reunited with his family at long last. So you haven't seen them for a year and a half. And did they know that you were coming? No, so it was a surprise. Yes. So what did, can you tell me about the meeting? What happened? Okay, this was like the best moment in my life. This is like the best, the best, the best moment in my life. I met my mom. I, all of my family cried. Especially my mom, I was crying. I, I, before I met my family, I thought, I don't want to cry, I don't want to cry. But when I, I met my mom and my sister, after the tears is, came out, a lot of tears. I, 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 I met my mom, I hugged my mom, my sister and everything. But then it all turned in the blink of an eye. My family said, uh, talk to me, why did you come here? Something like that. But, and then I said to them, uh, I only have uh, about two days here, and then after that, I need the ISIS uh, people need ask me to join the military. And when my family hear about that, they um, you know a little bit angry, some, a little bit angry to me. No, uh, no, you cannot join anything. This was the moment when it all started to fall apart. The disillusionment hit, and it hit hard. What do you think at this point? Because you thought that you were going to go to college and you were going to get yes, a job. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. your family were going to be really happy when you got there, right? Mm-hmm. And you get there and actually your family tell you that. This is bullshit. <laughs> February and his family now had a whole world of problems on their hands. Not only was life in Syria not what was advertised, but February was also being pressured into joining the military. His family were terrified that enlistment would send him to an early grave. And so, they concocted a plan. First of all, to keep February from being drafted into service, and then to escape from ISIS altogether. So you made a plan that you would not join the military, whatever happened? Whatever happened. So my family said that, oh, you need to pray to be sick and everything. And then yeah, we I need to acting and everything. 
when the ISIS person came to our apartment, he said that when it's time. But then my sister and the woman uh, came out that said that I'm I I am not capable to join the military because I always sick. And then he uh, take me to the hospital because he don't believe it. And then yeah, my family said okay, you just go to hospital to make him uh, uh, leave. When I go to hospital, I get uh, injected. Yes. Injection. Injection. They give me the medicines, everything, just like that. And yeah, uh, thank God that I became really sick because of the medicine. Because oh, right. Yes, because I'm not sick and I get the medicine, I become sick. So that was really kind sick. of lucky. Yes, yeah. I, I really sick. I got uh, diarrhea and uh, thrown up a, li- a lot of times and uh, fever and everything. And yeah, that's good. He pretended to be sick, and since the excuse seemed to be working, he decided to keep going with the charade. And after a few weeks, we always talk, 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 negotiate with him. And then, and then he a little bit angry at the last time I, I've seen him. Okay, uh, whatever you wish, something like that. And then he go, but my family said, after he uh, go, you cannot go uh, out from the house, from the apartment. They need to stay here. So he was essentially under self-imposed house arrest. The ISIS recruiter eventually appeared to have given up on him, but it was still too risky for him to go out in case he was spotted and dragged off to the battlefield. At the same time, his family had had enough of Syria. Their son was in danger of being sent to the front lines, and daily life under ISIS was extremely unsettling, especially for some of the female members of his family. My sister got captured by the police, uh, woman police, Shariat police. Uh, he, she is captured and go to the police station and said that you are your outfit is not in Shariat. You need to buy the official outfit from ISIS. You need to pay. And it's a lot of money, around 10,000 Syrian pounds. And then my sister, uh, all angry that, um, what? I don't want to pay because you said that uh, everything here is free. Baghdadi said, your leader said we can get anything free, the Muhajirin. Uh, especially the Muhajirin, we came out uh, uh, far away from the country, we can get free and after that she negotiated with the ISIS and uh, thank God that he, she is released. His family had also received a frosty reception from the local population. The people who were still living in Raqqa possibly resented invasion by a terrorist group and were also unhappy about having to share resources with waves of new recruits. On top of the cold response and the petty fines, February's family had also seen the cruelty of ISIS firsthand. So, when you were living under ISIS in Mm. Raqqa, you saw a beheading? Um, My family saw it. They saw it when it actually happened? After the beheading, the the body in the the clock, in in the the circle in in the city, uh, there is a body and and a head, and the head is uh, separate from the body and got kicked uh, by the children there. 
And seeing children play football with a severed head wasn't the end of it. February and his family experienced firsthand what it was like to live in an active war zone. So when the bombs were dropped, they were being dropped on Raqqa? Bombs, oftenly. Like, in one hour, you cannot count how many of them. Often with the bomb drop from the plane, the gunshots everywhere, every minute, every day, night and days, in the afternoon. Yeah, I mean, this is the war zone. I mean, this is... I always pray to God I can get, uh, escape from this from that place sooner. They just wanted to go back to Indonesia, and so they turned to the internet for help. We can only get internet access in the internet cafe. Right, and so the women in your family were emailing the Indonesian embassy in Damascus. Yeah, from social media, from Facebook, Facebook, I think. My, my sister gave a message to uh, embassy in Damascus that it's about one year before I always uh, find a way from uh, embassy and uh, foreign affairs in Indonesia. The Indonesian authorities essentially told them that they could return to Indonesia if they could first get out of ISIS-controlled territory. To do that, they needed to surrender to SDF, or the Syrian Democratic Forces, a coalition made up of Kurdish and Arab militia that claimed to be fighting for a secular and democratic Syria. But even that wasn't without its challenges. In June 2017, a day before I surrender, my family came to the house of this of this man, of this person who helped us, and then um, he said, uh, "You need to bring something, uh, you know, a flyer, you know, like brochure, a little uh, small brochure, because the before a few days before, there's a plan from the SDF, uh, throw from the air about this." I don't know what it really said, but it said that you need to surrender and everything. And yeah, you bring this, uh, he gave us, and surrender to SDF, well, and maybe you will uh, get uh, ditahan. Yeah, ditahan for... Arrested. Arrested, maybe a few days, something like that, a few weeks. And yes, of course, uh, we agreed, and then, yeah, he uh, had a smuggler. We go by the car uh, across the river in the Efrat River. The Euphrates. Yes. Yeah. With the uh, small, small, small what? Uh, boat. Yeah, boat. Yeah, something. So you went to the Euphrates. So you cro- you went down to the Euphrates on a co- uh, by car, and then you crossed the Euphrates on a boat. Yes. We uh, go to Smuggler House. Mm. The Smuggler said that. He will contact the SDF people that we will come there. This is, that was in the day, daylight. And then yeah, after he communicate, we go by the car again uh, to the SDF area. But, uh, but suddenly, when we close to the territory, SDF territory, they shot, shot us with the guns. Who shot you? SDF. And then the bullets is everywhere run above my head because near the car and kena ke mobil and that 
we came back to the house we at the night we came back again uh, we go back to the SDF uh, territory again but we got shot again by the SDF because uh, the, the walkie-talkie is kind of broken you know the uh, smugglers said that don't attack us don't attack us we will we want to surrender something but they said that the SDF uh, only hear about the attack attacking attacking attack and they attack us and then we came back again and after and, uh, the third times we finally uh, got uh, successful to go to SDF so they, the third in the morning time they heard in the morning yeah by the walkie talkie that yes. you wanted to surrender yeah that was a bad moment to yes. have a communication problem yes. yeah and for the technology not to work okay so the third time you went back and said you wanted to surrender they said okay <laughs> at that time were you not worried about what would happen if isis found out that you had left of course we we really worried you know because uh, a lot of seeing if someone get out from the ISIS territory we've got who uh, when ISIS know that we want to get out from the territory we got captured we got shot and everything what do you uh, think would happen if they caught you we will be killed of course after finally successfully surrendering to SDF February and his family were interrogated for two months about their time living under ISIS throughout this period they were also interviewed by the media who helped spread their story, and this attracted the attention of the Indonesian authorities. In early August 2017, they were moved to a new facility close to the border between Iraq and Syria, where the Indonesian government agreed to pick them up. And so they were met by Norhuda Ismail, Hakim's brother, and one of the co-founders of Rangobro, who helped to facilitate their journey back to Indonesia. So you met Norhuda Ismail in, in in the border of Iraq and Syria. At the border of Iraq and Syria. Kurdistan, Kurdistan, Kurdistan area. And he helped you to come back to Indonesia. Yeah. Okay. Do you regret going to Syria? Uh, yes, I regret, but I also uh, thankfully because I met my family. Would you do it again? <laughs> in the same situation to meet my family I hope not because my family has already you know got realized this is it's not right the reaction to the first episode of this mini-series has been interesting to watch it would be fair to say from the comments I've seen on social media that the response to February has been overwhelmingly negative. A few months after our first interview, I went back to see February again and got to the Rang Obral office when he was still at Friday prayers at the local mosque. While I waited for him, Hakim, the founder of Rang Obral, filled me in on what had happened since my last visit. According to Hakim, February had been in a glum mood following some negative publicity about his case. As a result, February had decided not to do any more media interviews. Hakim said February had only agreed to see me again because we'd met before and he trusted me. In both Hakim and February's telling, February did an interview on camera with a media organisation which I'm not going to name. The video footage was fine until the outlet sold it 
a practice that's not uncommon, by the way, to another media organization who took the video and added their own captions. That video was taken down after February complained, but he showed me a copy that he'd saved on his phone. And to be fair to him, it misrepresents his story in a number of ways. First of all, the caption said that February left Syria in 2019, not 2017, which makes a big difference. If February had left in 2019, which he didn't, this would mean that he jumped ship as the caliphate had begun to crumble. But by leaving in 2017, February had instead left of his own accord, before things got so bad that he was left with no choice but to flee. And I think that this agency is important. Secondly, the video implied that February sought refugee status after he left the caliphate, something that has become a very contentious issue since the fall of Raqqa. And it's not true, February was never a refugee. He simply wanted to return to Indonesia, where he has Indonesian citizenship. When I talked to February, he was gloomy about being misrepresented. The video had prompted a barrage of abusive comments online, many of them accusing him of only leaving Islamic State because he had no other choice. So I asked him what he wanted to say about the negative coverage that his case has received. And a lot of people retweet and uh, share that news on the media, social media, and they uh, what, bully me, really a lot of them. Um, so I become a little bit uh, trauma, a little bit trauma, because this is not the first time actually. Before when I was uh, just came, came back from uh, Syria and in Indonesia, there are a few uh, media, local media that interview me and my family and the story uh, is not like the real it's not real and um, uh, I hope that uh, the other media that want to interview me next time or uh, really need to tell the truth uh, not to twist the, 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 the news the news yeah yeah, because this publication, they said that you would you had just come back because mm. in 2019, when ISIS had already collapsed. Yeah. But actually, you came back in 2017, mm. before ISIS had collapsed, yes. kind of of your own initiative, right? So that's actually quite a big difference. Yes. Yeah. In the story. Yeah, and all, in that, then you said that I'm the security threat to Indonesia. <laughs> After all, I I have a good friends with a. With the government right now, with the police, with the uh, national agency for combating terrorism, and uh, everything. I had a good relationship with all of them. You kind of have to feel for February here, or at least I did. After all, as he says, since his return from Syria, he's been working with government agencies, with NGOs, with media organizations, and with Rangobrol to counter the message of radicalization. And by raising his head above the parapet in this way, he's also put himself in the firing line. I guess the question I have here is, what do we really want from February? Would we prefer it if he'd slunk back from Syria and faded into obscurity, taking all his knowledge and observations about the effects of radicalization with him? A few months after I interviewed February, I went to visit one of Indonesia's most famous and dangerous terrorists. Ali Imran, 
who was one of the Jamai Islamia members behind the Bali bombings, which killed 202 people. Bang Ali, as he's known, is serving a life sentence in prison in Jakarta for his role in planning the attacks on the Sari Club and Paddy's Pub in Kuchambali. Unless he's granted clemency, he will most likely die in prison. Bang Ale has been behind bars for 16 and a half years now, and during that time he's spoken out about the dangers of radicalization. He's also done other things to try to make amends, like meet with victims and families of victims of the Bali bombing who've visited him in prison. I asked him what that was like, and what he said when he came face to face with them. The first thing I always say is that I'm sorry, he said. What else can I say? He also, like February, shared his frustration about how he's looked at from the outside. So many people accuse me of faking it, he said. But what else can I do? If former terrorists or ISIS sympathisers say they're sorry or that they made a mistake, the public is often quick to judge. We say that they're only doing it to get out of prison or to save their own skin from being prosecuted or sentenced to death to assuage their guilt and make themselves feel better, or to get on TV. To so many of us, their apologies are always hollow. But where does that leave de-radicalization efforts and the rehabilitation of former combatants or sympathizers? What are we looking for, or what do we want to hear, before we can perhaps forgive people who were once radicalized? Would anything ever be enough? Are we really interested in forgiveness or redemption? In all my time interviewing former terrorists and ISIS returnees, the most empathetic person I've ever met is Hakim, the founder of Romobrol. We're all human is a phrase he uses a lot. He'd once told me a story about how he got involved in starting Romobrol and working with returnees and terrorists. And it's a story that stuck with me throughout my hours of making this podcast. I'd asked Hakim how he first made the transition from being a journalist who wrote film and food reviews to working with people like February. And it started with a drive from Jogjakarta to Solo. Uh, so, is there a reason that you were interested in radicalization and uh, like terrorism related work more than something else, like drugs, for example? Or? Well, it's, it's because of the... Uh, kind of a personal uh, experience. Well, Nur Huda Ismail is my brother. So I know him working in this field this is quite long. And one time on a journey uh, with him, I actually met, before I, I just like journalist for Republica. Uh, and uh, I got scholarship in UK and then coming back working for the environmental uh, organizations and one of in one of the journeys i took a leave from the all my environmental organizations I took a leave and then i'm actually met so i just know what Huda's doing when we discuss it in families but i actually meet the former combatants and actually through the interactions it's not long it's just like uh, uh, drive from Jogja to Solo is kind of a two-hour drive and also through the interactions while we are in Solo I learned that they are they are humans at first I'm very scared but as Hakim interacted with former combatants he came to a realization I suddenly understand their difficulties 
they are father they have to feed the, the kids the families they have to be the breadwinner but they fail uh, the stigma is still there even one of the former and I met there it's difficult for him to find a loan to put the kids to schools even from the neighbor because of the stigma I think uh, I need to help this persons because the sense that I got that they are fellow humans. I also agree with Hakim on this. And I also agree that we need people who've returned from places like Syria to tell us their stories. Otherwise, how would we ever know? When their experiences and warnings could contribute to the fight against extremism and radicalization, does it matter if they don't grovel and self-flagellate in the way we might want them to? I've thought for a long time about how to end this podcast, and I'm going to go back to the last time I met February, because in my opinion, it sums up the complexity and yet the simplicity of what it's like to meet someone who was once radicalized. We'd been recording well into the afternoon in Jakarta, and everyone was tired and hungry. It was me, a photographer from Medan, February, and Arif Tuban, who's another former member of Jamai Islamiyah. We decided to order delivery, and as I was finishing up recording Arif, February picked the food for all of us. When it arrived, he'd chosen McDonald's. And so that's really the image of the ISIS returnee that I want to leave you with. We sat there, cross-legged on the front porch of the Rangobrol office, eating our Big Macs and eating our chips as the sun started to set over Jakarta. For new narrative and a special series of Southeast Asia dispatches, I'm Aisha Llewellyn, and this was Road to Raccoon.